0: This morning is April the 22nd, Sunday morning. Sunday morning church time. You guys ready for a good word? Yeah. This is going to be an exciting message. I got the opportunity to uh, prepare this with the Holy Ghost steamroller. And uh, I got to let you know we're excited about this message.
1: The truth is the honor is mine.
0: <laughs> Not true at all. Bim's going to preach and I'm just going to stand up here and agree with him. So... The title of today's message is Reasons for Confidence. Oh, yeah. Everybody say that with me. Reasons for Confidence. We got reason for confidence. Hey, before we do that, I just want to brag a little bit about this church. Okay? This church started in in uh, 2003. Where's Matt? 2002. Pastor comes from a broken situation. Feels like God tells him to go to a place where doesn't seem, seem uh, like God would, would be interested in this area because there's so many churches already. The Lord sends a pastor here. The pastor faithfully works the ground. The Lord sends another pastor, Matthew, to join Eric. They're working diligently. The Lord is speaking to them the entire time about uh, a vision that, that Elder Charlie had years back about uh, an arm being raised up, the arm of the Lord being raised up. And in the vision, Elder Charlie asked, Lord, how is this going to happen? When is it going to happen? And if if I'm saying it correctly, I believe the Lord told Elder Charlie, it will happen. It's going to happen. I'm going to raise up an army to go out to the nations. So through that, one pastor comes here, another pastor joins. They raise up disciples. They send them on to Chicago. They send them on to Washington, D.C. They send them everywhere. Indonesia. They send them... uh, all the way as far as is Africa and all over the world, right? Right now, we're, we're sitting here this Sunday morning, and we have a team in Romania. We have a team in uh, India. We got a team in Dallas right now with Mike Hutchison. We have a team, uh, just got back from Peru. And through all of that, the body is assembled here today, and we're gathered, and we're strong, and we're healthy, and we're vibrant, and we love the Lord, and we're here. Isn't that incredible? All the while, all those other things are going on. That is amazing. You want to know, you want to know something awesome about here? The next missionary that walks in through those doors, who's called to plant a church in the nation's capital, where is he going to walk into? Here. The next missionary that comes, who's got a calling to Iraq, or Iran, or who's, who's got a call to go shake up Egypt? Come on, Ibrahim. The next, the next man or woman of God who's got a call to, to a country is going to walk into these doors, and who are they going to see? Us. Worshiping the Lord. That's pretty incre- incredible, isn't it? They're going to join together with us, and they're going to be a part of this body. So that ought, to, that ought to excite us, that any day more and more comes. Any day more of you are going to be sent out. Any day... We're going to be raised up together and we're going to see the the will of God fulfilled. It's exciting, isn't it? So let's persevere through that. So the title of today's message is Reasons for Confidence. Turn with me to Genesis 15, chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 7.
1: Say there when you're there.
0: Say there when you're there. Running on about 15% right now. I need 100% of you there. Everybody there, come on. Genesis 15. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these things to him, cut them into two and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Everybody say, drove them away. Drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, no for certain. Everybody say, no for certain. No, no for certain. That for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Skip on down to verse 16 if you would. It says In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared. And passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, "To your descendants, I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, to the Euphrates, and so on and so forth." See, last Wednesday, uh, we had the privilege of uh, a couple of our brothers, Judah and Linton, preaching a phenomenal message. Bless me personally, called "He Wants You to Win." You guys, were you guys encouraged by that? <laughs> See, in that message, we, we went over the idea that God wants you to win. Jesus wants you to win. And we, we, uh, we thought about some things like having to look up to the sun, having to look up to the S-U-N and the S-O-N, and having all of our problems, all of our situations drown in the light of who Jesus is. Amen? Amen. We, we taught last week that God wants you to win. Okay? This week, we're going to teach you how God helps you win. How does God help you win? The scripture says that, that he is our ever-present help in our time of need. That means he is right there, ready at all times, ready to give you help. Okay? Now, let me ask you a question. Does it always seem like God is always right there, ready to give you help? No. A matter of fact, a lot of, a lot of the time, we, we, uh, we feel like God... We feel like Jesus is far, far from us. But the truth is that he is very close, what we learned last week. So what we're wrestling with in this passage, Genesis 15, we see that God promises something to Abram. He promises something that we know is unfathomable. We know it's impossible. We know that, that uh, the scripture says in Romans that he did not waver in unbelief regarding the promise, even though his body was as good as dead, but he was fully persuaded in the promise God gave him. P- fully persuaded, okay? Abram knew that his body was as good as dead, and here, here God is giving him a promise. And what God does, Abram asks the Lord. Abram asked the Lord, he said, uh, How can I know that I will gain possession of it? In verse Uh, verses 7 and 8. Abram asking the Lord, how can I know that I'm going to receive this promise, Lord? How am I going to know this? Isn't that a good question? Has the Lord promised you anything in this room, personally? Has the Lord promised you certain things, and you're waiting for it to happen? Well, the next question is, is Lord, how can I know I'm going to receive it? Right? Lord, what are you going to do for me? It's funny that Abram asked. What are you going to do for me to show me that you're going to keep your word? And God does something. He tells Abram to get a sacrifice get it ready, and then before, before Abram can finish cutting the, the pieces, God puts him in a deep sleep. God puts him in a deep sleep and he causes Abram to fall asleep. And while Abram is asleep, God begins to work on this covenant. He begins to seal it with his fire. He begins to cut the rest of the covenant. See, that's incredible, isn't it? God didn't need Abraham to finish the rest of the sacrifice. God took care of it himself. God did the work and Abram woke up and the, sacrifice, the the covenant was made. It's incredible to think about that. God did all of the work that's required for the covenant to be confirmed. God did it. Didn't, didn't rely on Abram. Didn't need Abram. He, he, he might have not even wanted Abram to do anything because he might have wanted Abram to trust in him. Right? But you see a tension here. You see a tension between two things going on, two different people working in the same scene. You see, there's another character working behind the scenes in this. What happens when Abram begins to arrange the pieces of the sacrifice? What happens? Birds of prey prey come. And they try to take the sacrifice. They try to ruin it, whatever they're doing. And what does Abram have to do? He has to drive them away. See, there's a tension between two people working in Abram's life at this point. You have the birds of prey and then you have God. And in your lives, in our lives, we have two different people working in our life. We have the Lord working on our behalf, working behind the scenes to make sure that our promises get fulfilled. And then you have Satan working to make sure that you do not receive the promises of God. Because what will Satan do if you don't receive the promise of God? He can go right to God and say, What happened, God? Weren't you big enough? Weren't you strong enough? Couldn't you have fulfilled what you promised to these people? That's exactly what Satan is doing here. Turn with me, if you will, to uh, Psalm 138.8. Psalm 138.8. Most of us can quote this by memory. It says... The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. We talked about this this morning and we were asking ourselves, who is this talking to? It says, Your, your love, O Lord, endures forever. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Who's, not, who's, who's working and who's supposed to be persevering in this? Good question, right? See, I always thought that the way this is said makes it seem like you're not supposed to abandon the work of your hands. Us. The way I read it now is if you read it as one verse, it says, The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. The psalmist is writing, and he's saying, that, Look, the Lord's going to fulfill His purpose for me, the Lord's going to do it. The Lord's going to make it happen. He's going to cut that covenant. He's going to make that promise happen. He's going to work it out. His love endures forever. Oh, Lord, do not abandon the works of your hands. Amen. See, the Lord is constantly working. It's like the psalmist is saying, don't stop, Lord. Don't quit on me just because I'm weak, just because I, I, I tend to, to be a little bit frail. Don't quit on me. Please, Lord, don't abandon the work of your hands. The psalmist is saying, I am the work of your hands, Lord. Please don't abandon it. You are the work of God's hands. The, the, the picture I get is that the Lord is like, like a carpenter building a fence. You guys are familiar with that example? And He's bringing pieces in and He's constantly working to make this thing happen. He's constantly got His hands on the project. Right? What this puts you as is you're the project and the Lord is hands-on with you and He's got His hands intertwined with your life. Every day He has His hand on you and He is working in your life to to fulfill His purpose for your life. That's comforting, is it? It's comforting to know that this doesn't 100% fall on your shoulders. It doesn't totally rely on your strength. Okay? That's a reason for confidence, is it? That if you're having a moment where you're you're thinking, oh, Lord, oh, man, I I screwed up this time. I really messed it up. Please, Lord, don't abandon the work of your hands. He's going to fulfill His purpose for your life. You see, the hand of the Lord is working on our behalf constantly, daily. He's working behind the scenes whether we know it or not, whether we're aware or we realize this. But Satan is also at work In your life, turn with me to Genesis 3 1. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 is the first time we see an antagonist on the scene. We see the other side of the story. We're not sure where he came from, we're not sure exactly what his motive is at this point. But one thing we know about him is it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The first thing that this character does, we identify the serpent as the dragon. It's the same Hebrew word as, as a snake, dragon, serpent. Uh, the Greek cognate is what we find in the book of Revelation. The great dragon was hurled down, the great serpent. So we identify this guy as Satan working through this thing, working through this dragon or the serpent, whatever it is. And what Satan is doing is he's being crafty. He is the most craftiest animal. He is the most craftiest thing that the Lord God had made. This Satan is so deceiving, so crafty. And what is he doing to the woman? He's, he's going up to her and he's putting seeds of doubt in her ears. Did God really say this? Did God really tell you this? Did God, do you think God will really mind if you go and do that sin? Do you think if nobody sees it that it really won't matter? Do you think, do you think Pastor Matt really said what he meant? Right? That's what Satan does. He is the craftiest, he is the, 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 the most deceiving part of this story. And he is working against God who is working on your behalf. You see, Satan comes, he is the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's very good at it. He's been doing it for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And he got people who were in the garden with, with God who knew no sin, he was able to deceive them into sinning against God Almighty, against the Lord of glory. He is very crafty and he is very deceiving, and he's good at it.
1: So we know in Genesis two excuse me, in Genesis two, that the Lord gives Adam a command to take care of the garden. He's free to do he's free to eat from any tree in the garden except the knowledge of good and evil. And so when we get to Genesis three, you see this serpent, this crafty serpent sowing seeds of doubt into Eve. And what he's really attacking is her confidence in the Lord. See, so the thing is, Satan wants to attack the confidence that God has promised to you, your trust in him, the promise that he's given you for your life. See, the scripture labels that serpent as the father of lies. And see, Paul in 2 Corinthians, as we turn to 2 Corinthians 2, he understood this concept when he was speaking to the church in Corinth. Say there when you're there. It says, if anyone, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there's anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In the order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So the thing is, the devil is always up to something. He's crafty. He's the father of lies. And what he does is, when the Lord gives you a word, when the Lord said, this will happen, you know what the devil does right afterwards? He immediately attacks the word of God in your life. And see, Paul understood this concept, and he's saying that what Satan is trying to do is essentially get us to commit spiritual genocide. Because if he can do that, like it says in John 3, it says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. See, the devil wants to kill the promise in your life. He wants to steal your confidence. And he wants to destroy your life at the end. See, Rob, the promises that he's made to you about a wife, it's going to come to pass. But the thing is, the devil wants to steer your confidence, but what you have to do is have a holy savagery against that. You have to know what the word of God says to you, the stones that you have to slay that giant. You have to understand that God is exactly who he said he is. Can you put Numbers 23, 19 on the the screen, please? See, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? See, when God says something, you can bank on it.
0: That's That's great.
1: You can bank on it. See, we have examples in the word from Abraham to Moses to David. We have examples when God calls the shots, it's going to come to pass. And so Paul's warning the church of Corinth that said, do not allow the devil to outwit us. See, when you think about this, a good example in the word is looking at the life of Peter. In Luke 22, In Luke 22, starting in verse 31, this is at the the pinnacle as Christ is going to the cross. You know, and Jesus warning Simon, it says in in verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. See, Peter. Peter was the chief disciple. You know, when the Lord asked the question, nobody else answered except Peter. You know, when when it was always time to act, Peter was always at the forefront. And see, here the Lord is telling that if Satan is trying to sift you. Even after the Lord said, "Come and follow me," I will make you fishes of men. At this point in his life, he, Peter's forsaken all. He's left everything behind, and yet the devil's still working to sift him. What is the devil trying to sift in your life today? What promises has the Lord given you? What promises has the Lord said? It will come to pass. You can bank on it. You can count on my word. And yet the devil right there, that tension, he's trying to sift you. But the thing is, it says that we have a great priest, a high priest that sits on the right hand of the Father that is daily interceding on our behalf. See, Peter thought that he could never deny the Lord. He thought that could never happen. That's why he says, I'm ready to go to prison and to death. And he failed miserably. But you see, God is a God of mercy. He's a God of the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth chance. Not not because you're willfully trying to sin, but because you're actually running after him with everything you have, and the devil is trying to sift you. And God wants, he wants you to win. See, you guys have arisen for confidence today. You know why? Because you're sitting in this room today, you're alive because the devil's been trying to sift you all this time. Mm -hmm. From the day you've been born again until now, your existence is proof that God is still working in your life. See, we're still talking about Peter after he denied the Lord. Thousands of years later, we're still talking about Peter. We're still talking about the books that he wrote. We're still talking about the great acts that the Holy Spirit moved upon his life to do. If you just trust in the Lord, if you just allow your confidence to rise up because he's never changed. Over and over and over again, the scripture says God does not change. What it's uh, Hebrews thirteen eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So do not let the devil mix your confidence in the Lord with doubt. Don't, don't allow it to happen because God is faithful and he will bring those promises to pass.
0: You know, it's incredible to think of Peter right before he's about to deny the Lord saying, you know, Lord, I'll never deny you. Uh, even, even up to prison, even uh, until death, Lord, I will never deny you. But how crafty was Satan? How crafty was Satan working into Peter elevating the fear, elevating the, the, the moment of Christ's suffering, elevating the, the cost that is involved of all Peter has to say is, yes, I'm a disciple. Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's all he has to say. And yet the devil has elevated the fear so much in his mind that he denies him, possibly within earshot of Jesus, right? That is how crafty Satan is. We're going to look at another example. Turn with me to, to Matthew 27, verse 3 through 5. You know, it's so easy to make statements like, Lord, I'll go with you unto prison and unto death. But we forget that there is an enemy of the saints he was, who is working constantly, daily. Most of the time, he's working overtime while we're working part-time. He wants to kill you. He wants to steal. And, and one of the main things he does it by is like Ben was saying, through your confidence, by eroding it. And look what happened in Matthew chapter 27, verse 3 through 5. Says when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders. Now that's incredible, isn't it? We have we, we tend to view Judas as such a wicked guy, and he was. But what we what we sometimes don't see is that Judas was filled with remorse for what he had done. He had a moment where he was guilty. He had a moment where he was shamed for his sin. He had an opportunity to repent, didn't he? Looks like he was, he was filled with, with remorse, so he was going to go correct the wrong that he did. He, he had a moment where he realized he sinned, and he felt the, the weight, the conviction, the condemnation that accompanies sin. And he had a moment. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Doesn't First 1 John 1, 1.9 say if you confess your sin, he is just and will forgive? Doesn't it look like Judas is trying to confess, confess and be forgiven? He says, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. He's not making excuses for his sin. Right here, he said, he's, this is what I did. I'm sorry. I want to repent. They said, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. You see, Judas was trying to repent, trying to get it right, and he went and hanged himself. What was going on through Judas' mind before he goes and hangs himself. He had just spent three years with Jesus. He heard all of the sermons that Jesus Jesus preached. He was there when Jesus said, if any man come to me, I will in no wise cast out. He heard that. And yet something happened where he tried to repent and he did not, he was not able to grasp, he did not believe that the Lord would forgive him of his sin. And he went and hung himself. You see, that is what Satan is trying to do in all of our lives. He is trying to get us to go hang ourselves. What Satan does is he comes to you and he he tells you, Did God really say that you can't do this? Is God really going to see it if you do it? Does, is it really going to matter if you just partake in this one sin? Is it really going to hurt you? And he puts that bait in front of you, and you take it, and you sin. You sin against the Lord. And there you're having a moment where you're just like, Dear Lord, how could I have done that to you? Lord, I knew that I wasn't supposed to do this, and I still did it anyway. Lord, I knew that this was not according to your will, and I fell flat on my face. And then what does the devil do? You wicked, miserable person. How could you do that to the Lord? He'll never forgive you. He'll never take you back. You see what the Lord does is he tries to push you to fall. He tries to push you and entice you to sin. Although you are sinning by your own sinful nature. And you have to get a grasp on that. Otherwise, uh, otherwise it will totally master you like Genesis uh, 4 says. But the Satan is using that against you. He's using that to beat, beat you up. Push you in a corner. Until you feel like you have no other option but to commit the sin. And then after you sin. He lies to you and tells you that you are worthless. You are not worth the time in God's day. He is is done with you. He is no longer going to work with you. All of your brothers, all of your sisters in Christ are done with you. They're never going to forgive it. They're never going to understand you. And you are done. That's what the devil does. And he is trying to work on you to get you to commit spiritual suicide. That is the tactic of the enemy. And we're gonna we're gonna make a turn in, in a little in a little while, but we gotta see what God what God is doing in our lives versus what the enemy is trying to come behind and destroy. The Lord is working on your behalf daily to encourage you. Keep going. Keep pressing in. Keep moving. You are my child, and the devil's also working on you to tell you that you are not his child, that you are false, that you messed up, and you can't get up. That's a lie, folks. That is a total, damnable lie, and it belongs nowhere in our hearts. We have a reason for confidence in the Lord, because he has taken all the sin, all the sin on the cross, and he dealt with it.
1: As a believer, you have to make up your mind that anything that comes out of the devil's mouth is a lie. And I think sometimes we forget that when we talk about having convictions based on a word, convictions based on absolutes, that should be an absolute for you. That anything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. Because if he can get you to lose confidence, if he can sow that seed of doubt, not, not only does it only affect you, but affects your children.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It affects the generations behind you. See, when the Lord spoke to Abram or Abraham at the time, it says, go and sacrifice your son, your only son, the one you love. Imagine if the enemy was able to sow doubt in Abraham's life. Just track with me. What does that mean for the nation that we see today in Israel? Because of one man's obedience. See, when the enemy attack you with those thoughts, and we've all been there. You're trying to get into the presence of the Lord. Maybe you had a bad day at work, a nasty email from a boss, uh, your tire blew out, and he's just attacking, just bombarding you with thoughts. You have to set your minds on things above. You have to fix your eyes on the one that can save you. See, when we turn to Revelation 12, turn to Revelation 12 and, and tell me when you're there. In Revelation 12, as I was studying with Justin this morning, I saw something that I've read countless of times but something new was revealed to me in the scripture is everyone there? so it says then I heard a loud voice in heaven so let me ask you guys a question why doesn't it just say then I heard a voice in heaven why does it say then I heard a loud voice in heaven See, when Satan is bombarding you with those thoughts, when he's saying you're, you're, you're a failure, how could you do that? When he's trying to get you to, to doubt in what God is doing in your life. See, when it says in Revelation 12, then I heard a loud voice. See, when you hear the voice of God, it's to drown out everything else that the devil is saying. See, the Lord can't just speak to you and it's just a voice. It's a loud voice that drowns out everything that the enemy is trying to plant in your mind. See, in Matthew 13, where we, we talk about the, uh, the farmer who sold the seed. He sold good seed, and then the enemy comes and plants weeds, right? The Lord showed me this a while back, that the Lord plants good seed in your life. And what the enemy does is he follows right back up to plant doubt. And those doubts always start in your mind. It always starts in your mind. Because the, the enemy knows that if he can get you to doubt what God is doing in your life, for you to have a lack of confidence, it's going to show up in a, in a physical manifestation. It's going to show up when you come to church. It's going to show up when, you, when, you, when you're at work. It's going to show up when you're supposed to minister to the person at the parking lot, but you're wavering back and forth, wondering if it's really God, because the enemy's been bombarding you. But when a loud voice speaks to you, when God speaks to you, and he drowns that out, It says in Revelation 12, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. See, I don't want to just have an intellectual acknowledgement of scripture. I don't want to just read scripture and identify with it. I want to believe it. Mm. See, it's, it's easy to read the scripture and say, man, I know God did that in this person's life, but do you believe he's going to do it in your life? Because if it says in the Tanakh in the Old Testament, the Brit Hadashah and the New, that God does not change, what does it mean for you? See, the church of America, the church of today is lacking confidence. See, our king, he's not, he's not wavering back and forth when the enemy is trying to thwart his plan. He's not, he doesn't feel like his throne is, is threatened. He's not wavering back and forth in his confidence. And the reason I'm saying that is because if he made you in his image, what does that mean for you? What is it supposed to mean for you? Your confidence is derived from him. Your confidence is derived from the throne of God. But it doesn't stop there in Revelation 12. In verse 11, it says, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony they did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Say, it's his blood. It's his blood. Say, it's his blood. It's his blood. It's his blood blood that allows you to be here today. It's his blood that is allowing his spirit to, to run through you and move you to do his will. It's his blood that's allowed you to turn away from the world and to run towards his promises. It's his blood. See, It says that uh, demons believe in God and they shudder. And if we're creating his image and his blood has marked us like it marked the nation of Israel in Exodus and death death passed them over and they came out of death into life. His blood has marked you for resurrection life. His blood has marked you so you can have confidence in him. And it says... uh, By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. See, his blood leads to you having a testimony. So when you share about your love for the Lord, it starts with the blood of Christ. It starts at the cross. It starts with him laying down his life for you to live. And that's how you have a testimony. And then it leads you to say, I don't love my life anymore and I refuse to shrink back from death. See, when you have confidence in the Lord, when he's he's put that seed in you, not even the gates of hell can stop you. Amen. Not even the gates of hell can stop you. Amen. See we have reason for confidence. Say I have, for confidence. I have reason for confidence. Say I have reason for confidence. I have reason. Listen, I want you guys to really believe that when you say it, say, I have reason for confidence." I have reason for confidence. Because God, God is confident. He doesn't doubt. He doesn't waver. He doesn't worry. He doesn't say, oh man, I don't know what's going to happen. You had a flat tire. How am I going to help you? He says that he knows the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things have not been done. But he said, my counsel will stand and I will do my pleasure. He will accomplish his will in your life. Turn to Philippians 2 and say there when you're there. This is Paul writing. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. When you've been marked by the blood of the Lamb, and you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, he causes you to will and to act. He gives you his desires. He gives you a a purpose, a function, a mezuzah, to go after the things that you can never imagine. See, outside of Christ, people try to fulfill uh, their life. They try to build up a life for themselves that is all going to wither away. The guy that wants to make all the money in the world finally gets all the money in the world, and he's still empty. The, the guy that, that wants to build a business and think that he's going to uh, obtain eternal life in that way or, or some uh, satisfa- 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 satisfaction, and yet he's empty. But when you've been marked by the blood of the lamb, when you've been marked by the blood of the lamb, I can't stop saying that because his blood is everything, and that's where it starts. He causes you to will and to act according to his purpose. See, God has never changed. When he called the shots in Genesis 3, it's still working in our lives today. Amen. And he's going to fulfill it. See, we're, we're, we're already saved. We're being saved and we'll be saved when he comes. Amen. So do not let the devil steal your confidence. Allow the Lord to work in your life to will and to act.
0: Turn with me to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. See, it's incredible to think of the idea that God is working inside of you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. See, we always, we, we always know that we've got to do the will of God, right?
1: Amen. Yes.
0: Sometimes the how is what's killing us. How am I going to do that? Well, you can rest assured this morning... That God is working inside of you to give you the desires to go after it. And He's working inside of you to give you the power to do those right actions to go after it. You see, we we oftentimes think that, that this totally depends on how much I can do for God. And it really doesn't. How many of you, when you got born again... You just woke up one day and said, by my own great strength, I'm going to follow God, and I'm going to get my heart right, and I'm going to be pure and clean by my own great strength. Not possible. But what we forget is that as we continue in Christ, we have to have those good actions, those good deeds. Otherwise, we can't, be rest we can't have assurance that we actually have faith. But... Where does your faith come from? And where do those actions come from? And where do they originate? It's God working inside your heart as you get into the Word, as you pray, as you meditate on Him, as you ask Him to show you more of His will. He is changing the inside of you so that you will have new desires and you will have new, fresh power from on high to carry out His will. That's what God is doing. That's what God is actively working out in your heart. That's incredible, isn't it? Say, it doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on me. But I better walk it out with fear and (laughs) trembling. Because God is working in you. You see, if you, if you fail to understand that it is God working in you, you become arrogant, prideful, sinful. It's a very fearful thing. Because God is working in you. He will hold you accountable for everything He's done inside of you. But... If it's your heart's desire to want to continue, He will keep doing it. He will keep doing it. The more... Think about this. Starts with starts with the Lord working on your heart. He gives you the desire, right? Gives you the desire. The Greek word is thalo. The will, the, the, the love to do, do what He wants. And then from that thalo or that will, you go out and do righteous actions. And then after you do righteous actions, He gives you more will. And it gives you more pleasure and more to, more to fulfill. So, everybody in Ephesians two eight, it says, "For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves; it is the gift of God. You have received the blood, like Bim talked about, and you've received a testimony from God as a gift, not by works, so that no one can boast." None of you will be able to stand before the Lord and say, look at all the great things I did. You know what he's going to say? I never knew you. No one can boast in his presence. All we can boast on is our weakness. Because in our weakness, he gives us more power, more will to do what we must do. It says that, for we are God's handiwork. We are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Grasp this with us this morning, that you are God's workmanship. You are God's handiwork. He is working. He's hands-on in your life, giving you the will and the desire to carry out His righteous actions on this earth. God is working inside you. You're His handiwork, church. You have received the blood, and you've received an ongoing testimony because of Him.
1: Turn to Joshua six. The way you guys turn to Joshua six, Joy, could you put up Psalm one thirty-eight eight on the screen, please? In Psalm one thirty-eight eight, it says, "The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever." Do not abandon the workers, the works of your hands. I remember early on in my walk, this is one of the scriptures that I, I memorized. And I held step fast to the scripture. Because when you've been marked by the blood of the Lamb, it causes everything to change. I've never met anyone that says... Uh, uh, I've been marked by the blood of Jesus Christ He's died for my sins and I'm madly in love with him and my life stayed the same. It's not possible. Everything transforms in your life when you've been marked by the blood of the lamb. So when it says that the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me, your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the work of your hands. Do you know what I hear? He is still, still on the throne. He is still on the throne. Andrew, In your life, he's still on the throne. Cody, Wendy, what the Lord has promised you guys, no matter what the enemy says, he is still on the throne. So the the enemy knows what the end result for him is. The Lord's already called it since the very beginning. So he's working very hard to make sure it doesn't come to pass in your life. But God is still on the throne. Say he's he's still on the throne. He's still on the throne. He's still on the throne. It's not even threatened in a little way. Not even close. He is still on the throne. He is going to fulfill those purposes in your life. In Joshua 6, we see this example. We see the Lord speaking to the nation of Israel. Picking up in verse 2. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with his king and his fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times. When the priests blow their trumpets, when you hear them sound a long, when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpet, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the, enemy, and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Most of us in this room are familiar with the story of the nation of Israel attacking Jericho. But the Lord doesn't tell them to, to take your weapons and here's, here's this magnificent plan of uh, how you're going to do it. When the Lord actually details his plan for them, Could you imagine Joshua going back to his generals and saying, hey, this is the plan. We're going to use trumpets. That's ludicrous. That's insane. But the thing is, when the Lord speaks, whatever is impossible becomes possible. When the Lord speaks in your life, whatever is impossible becomes possible. If you believe. So allow your confidence to rise this morning. See, the nation of Israel, Joshua, he believed it because they did exactly what the Lord said. And pick it up in verse 15. It says, on the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. See, the Lord would give you that will to act according to his purpose. See, he gave them his word. And then he gives them the will to do it. So they go around the city seven times in the same manner. Except on that day, they circle the city Seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The Lord is going to give that promise to you. When he spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12, he was 86. And he doesn't have Isaac until he's 99. See, Isaac got married at 40. And he doesn't have Esau and Jacob until he's 60. But the thing is, the Lord is always gonna fulfill his purpose if we just stay steadfast. And the nation of Israel got that victory of Jericho. In verse 16, it says, When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and uh, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. When the walls fell, what, what the enemy has put up as a structure, as an obstacle, as opposition to what the will of God is in your life, when it falls, you are filled with confidence. See, they charged straight in and they took the city. They absolutely plundered it. When you believe what the Lord has called you to do, what he's promised you, his, his promise that will come to pass in your life, the words that he's given to you, when those walls come down of opposition, when those walls come down that the enemy is trying to soul in your life, you have all the confidence in the world. And
0: go with me to Deuteronomy 1 27 through 31. See there when, when you're there. 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 One of the amazing things that happen is, happens is when the Lord gives us a promise, it's usually something impossible. It's usually something that we can't do on our own. And so it's amazing to see from time to time how the Lord fulfills these promises to us. He does things in our lives that are so supernatural. If you look back, you, you can't explain them to people. When you try to tell these testimonies to people, they're just like, Yeah, I don't get it. Right? You in Deuteronomy 127? Yes. Deuteronomy 127 says. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. What could have happened up to this point? After seeing the Red Sea split, after seeing the entire Egyptian army, the strongest military force that the planet had ever seen up to that point, completely drown in the Red Sea, the Israelites are now grumbling and complaining. Somehow or another, that crafty serpent had worked its way into the minds of these people into thinking that God is not able to do what He said He's going to do. Another impossible circumstance. But Moses is reminding the people of Israel, and he's he's saying to them, You said, where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They said, The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, Do not be terrified and do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as He did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries His Son Amen. all the way you went until you reached this place. See, there's something that you need to grasp this morning. You have many, many reasons for confidence. But one of the primary reasons that you have for confidence is that you are children of God. See, yes. so what we talked about earlier, spiritual suicide, the crafty serpent, He tries to come to you and say that God is not a good father. And if He doesn't tell you that, He tries to tell you you're not a good son. But if we understand how fathers treat their sons, we would understand just, just a little bit of the love of who God is. As a matter of fact, it, it doesn't say that God has love. It says that He is love. He is love. Okay? So how God treats us is very, very different than what we can expect from, from any, anything normal that we've, we've experienced before. See, God does not treat you with a kind of love that says, you know what, I'm done with you. you messed up. You're done. You know what God does? God continually demonstrates His faithfulness to you, and He carries you when you cannot carry yourself. He will carry you on His when you cannot walk what does a father do when a son can't walk? He picks him up and puts him on his shoulders. You know, my, my son came to me in the middle of the service and he's trying to open a water bottle. He can't open it. And like a, like a father would, I, I grabbed the water bottle, I opened it for him, and I'm happy to do that. I'm actually, I'm actually not really looking forward to the day when he can do all that himself because I love to be able to do that for my son how much more does God want you to succeed? How much more does He want you to win? How much more is He working in your life on a daily basis as a father treats a son? Amen. You see, we, we don't have that perspective. When you're in your, your, your deepest trial, when you're in your hardest moment, is the first thing that comes out of your mouth, Abba Father? Or is it, oh my God, how is this happening? Lord, oh my God, what do I do? You see, if you knew who your father was, you would have reason for confidence. That's right. He is a good, good Father, and He wants you to succeed. He wants to treat you like a son, and He will carry you. So many times we, we, we think, and we get so wrapped up in our own perfection. We want to be perfect so bad. Right? We want to appear to be doing well. We want to appear to have it all under control. But the Father sees right through that. He knows who His sons are. He knows what you're struggling with. And when we want to appear like we have it all under control, it's just pride. We're just trying to make ourselves look better than our other brothers. We're just like the, 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 the rabbi who meets with the tax collector and says, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this other man. That's what you're doing. See, the, the, the need and the want to be perfect, it's a good thing if you're doing it because you want to please your father. It's a very bad thing if you're doing it because you just want to be perfect. See, your father knows you. And as his father, as his father, he will, as long as you want to please him, he will never turn you down. He'll never do it. We have to to be reminded. We have to get into the spirit of the father. We have to, to worship the father. We have to get into the father's presence on a daily basis so that we can be reminded. We can hear his voice say, you are my son and I am well pleased with you. You see, if anyone is born of the Spirit, His Spirit will testify to our Spirit that we are truly sons of God. Anybody have that testimony? Yes. Yes. Anybody experience that? Yes. You need to walk in it. And you need to remember it. And you need to write it down. And you need, to, you need to meditate on it. You need to be reciting it to yourself all day. That you're a son of God. Amen?
1: Amen. There's something that Teresa just said um, about writing it down. When the Lord does something that is supposed to be impossible, but becomes possible, do you ever take time to write down what he actually did? What you felt in the moment, some of the thoughts that the enemy was using to attack you, but how you, you held steadfast to the word and how the Lord came through. See, so we have to write down what the Lord does as a reminder. He tells the nation of Israel this, to write it down on tablets. When the Lord does something in your life, don't just celebrate in the moment and be thankful and forget about it as time passes. Write it down. Because we're flawed and we make mistakes. We're going to get things wrong. When you write those miraculous events down and you you continue to persevere after the Lord, you can always revert back to what he has done. And The psalmist in, in Psalm 18 understood this concept and Pick it up in verse 2. He says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. And when I read this, it's almost like he's writing it as a reminder to himself. So the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock. But he already said that. You have to remind yourself. You have to take the emotions that you're feeling and drag them to the cross. You have to take the emotions you're feeling and drag them straight to the word. You align your emotions, your thoughts with the word of God, not the other way around. The word of God is the standard. And so the psalmist is writing and saying, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is, is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield. And horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my, 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 is your God. His my God. You have to take ownership of that. And the psalmist continues, I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise. And I have been saved from my enemies. When he says, I have been saved from my enemies, he's thinking back to what the Lord has already done. Mm-hmm. So the very next verse is getting ready to say, he's believing that God is going to do it again. So when he says the cords of death entangled me. How many of us in here have ever felt like the cords of death were entangling you? Like all the gates of hell have been unleashed on you. Nobody else, just you. Right? And we've all, we've all been there. Everything that could possibly go wrong is going wrong. And he's saying here, the cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destructions overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me The snares of death confronted me. It can't get worse than this. See, that crafty serpent, he doesn't stop. And he won't stop until the Lord puts him down. When he's thrown into the lake of fire. And so the psalmist is feeling the weight weight of death surrounding him. And there's something miraculous getting ready to happen. When you cry to your father... When you look at your situation and say, Lord, I have no idea how this is ever going to happen. It is impossible. But I trust in your word. He loves that. Because he's still on the throne. And he gives you those reasons to have confidence. The things he's done in the past bring confidence in the future. And you have to trust him. And so when it goes on in verse 6, as Justin's getting ready to read, we see the Lord's reaction because he's a father. See, Paul, when your, your wife is threatened or your kid is threatened, you don't, you don't wait. You don't, you don't consult. You go after it because that's the promise that God has given you for you to lead your family. The promise he's given, you need to take ownership of that. And when you cry out to him when it's being threatened, God responds.
0: Amen. Everybody say it's about to get good. It's about to get good. See, you've got to insert yourself into the story like Bim has been working hard to do. The cords of death are entangling you. You're being choked out. Your faith is being whittled down to just a little flicker. Your faith that you used to see, the dead raised, you used to preach, and now you're there alone. And you feel like you're faithless. You feel like you failed the Lord. You feel like the devil is, is, is getting more victory than, than the Lord is. You feel like you're letting everyone down. You feel like circumstances are off the chart crazy. Everything seems to be attacking you in the moment. And you feel like the Lord has abandoned you. The cords of the grave are coiling around you and the snares of death are confronting you. You are this close to dying. You feel spiritually that you are this close to dying. And what do you do? The psalmist says, in my distress I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under His feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared out of the wings of the wind. He made darkness His covering, His canopy around Him. The dark rain clouds of the sky, out of the brightness of His presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning he routed them. The valleys of the seas were exposed. And the foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke. Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils. He reached down from on high and took a hold of me. He drew me out of the deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. Because He delighted in me, church. Because He delighted in you, the Lord reaches down from on high to pick you up. You see, you have to understand how He views you. He views you as a father, views his son. If a son was out amongst lions that were circling him, what would the father be doing? If the son was crying out to help, do you think that the father would just sit by and wait for someone else to go? No, the the Lord would be right there. He'd be going after his son to rescue him from the, the entanglement. That is how the Lord feels about us, church. We are His sons and His daughters. And don't let anything steal that from you. You cry out to the Lord. He is our ever-present help in our time of need. He is always there, ready to answer you when you are crying out to Him. What the devil tries to tell you, the very first thing he lays on your mind is, Don't cry out to the Lord. He won't answer you. He won't answer you like he did before. You must go to the Father's presence in your time of need. And you must say, Lord, I need you. And watch Him come through. And you know what? He might not remove you from the circumstance. He might not remove all of the trials. But He's going to give you an answer. He's going to speak to you as a father would inside. He's going to say, I'm right there. I'm right there. And I'm coming. He's going to remind you of the promises that He gave you. And He is going... What does it say? What does it say? It says a smoldering wick He will not put out. And a bruised reed He will not break. Do you feel bruised? Do you feel sometimes like you're smoldering? The Lord wants to fan into you that flame, not take it away. Amen. You've got to remember the character of the Father. He is for you, not against you. Remember in Romans 8 we read last, last Wednesday? He who gave his own son, if he gave his own son, how much more would he graciously give you all things in Christ? He wants you to have it. And I'm not talking about a name it, claim it. I'm telling you, he wants to fulfill, and he's going to do it, and he uses his word. He uses his spirit. He comes, and he gives you the will. He gives you the power and the desire, and he does it in you. And that's how
1: the Lord does it. He is your father, and you are his sons and daughters. Psalm 18 is absolutely incredible when you look at the Lord's reaction. See, it wasn't enough for the earth to just tremble and quake. It wasn't enough for the mountains to be moved. The Lord parted the heavens. Why does the Lord cause such a big scene when He's answering you? It's because He's full of confidence. He's getting ready to deliver you. See, that confidence, He wants to smear you in, He wants to envelop you in, He wants to surround you with that confidence. See, when we pick up in verse 37, it says, I pursued. This is, this, is hit. this is the result of him crying out to the Lord, and the Lord responded to him. And look at the will and act that the Lord gives him. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back to the. they were destroyed. I crushed them so that they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. Those lies that come straight from the pit of hell are going to be crushed under your feet. You have to trust what God is saying. You have to trust in this character, His character, Hash- His Hashem, His body of work, His reputation, that He's never, ever, ever, ever to infinity will ever give you a reason to doubt Him. And so the psalmist understood this. He said, you armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. Satan is going to get humbled at the end. He's going to get humbled at the end. That conceited serpent, that crafty, the father of lies, He's going to get humbled at the end. It says, you humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight, and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as wind blow dust. I trampled them like mud in the street. See, that is the writing of somebody that's been filled with the confidence of the Lord. Church. Since 2002 until now, God has done miraculous things among our midst. Let's not forget that. Among our midst, individually as a family, and he will continue to do that. Turn, to me, turn with me to Isaiah 64. Pick it up in verse 4. It says, since ancient times, no one has heard No one has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Part of the the walk in the kingdom, part of trusting God is waiting. It's waiting patiently, knowing that he's working behind the scenes to bring it to pass. It says in verse 5, you come to help those who gladly do right. Church, we have to persevere. We have to persevere. No matter what happens, we have to persevere. And we persevere by standing on the word of God. We persevere by being reminded that our God is our rock. He's our fortress. He's our stronghold. There's no mountain high enough. There's no valley that he can't reach down and, and pull you out of. His title is the king of kings. And the Lord of Lords. He's the Alpha and He's the Omega. He's Amen. the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's the Ancient of Days and the Everlasting Father. Amen. That's His name. See, when you realize who you are in Christ, demons tremble. When you realize who you are in Christ, it doesn't matter if the giant is 100 foot tall, it's going down. See, David had no problems picking up those five stones. He was getting ready not only for Goliath, but those four brothers behind him. Stick to what God has said. Do not allow the devil to sow seeds in your life. Do not allow him to plant doubt and mix your confidence with something that is worldly. Trust in what God is saying. And in verse 5, as we continue, it says, You come to help those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But But when we continue to sin against them, against his ways, you were angry. How then can we be saved? So we're in a fight. When I, when I talk to people in, from other churches, and they're like, man, why is all this stuff happening to me? I'm like, you're in a fight. Amen. You don't sign up for the army. You don't sign up for the Marines. You don't sign up for the military and then ask yourself, why am I fighting? See, we signed up for a heavenly kingdom that has been at war before we even arrived here. Amen. So we have to lace our boots, strap up the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the belt of truth, the gospel, the gospel of peace, To be ready on our feet. The breastplate of righteousness. And the word of God. The sword of the spirit. And when we pick up in in Isaiah 42. As we're getting ready to read. We find out that God wants to help. Not only does he want to help. He will help. Isaiah 42.
0: The famous passage referring to uh, the Messiah. Jesus quotes it about himself. And he says. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. You see, and the end of Isaiah sixty four says that when we continue to sin, He was angry with us. In Isaiah 42, Isaiah is talking about the servant that God upholds. The servant God upholds is acting rightly, is acting in a righteous way. You, you cannot mistake what we're talking about this morning, saying that God is, is going to fulfill His promise to you as something to the event that you don't have to do anything. It's not true. If you're not doing anything, the Lord will punish you just as if you're doing the wrong thing. Because He wants, He created you to do good works in Christ Jesus. And yet, it doesn't depend on your works at all. It all depends on what the Father has done and who He is to you. But don't don't mistake what we're saying. If you continue to sin, He will be angry. If you're not like the servant in Isaiah 42, He won't uphold you. But if you are... He will
1: uphold you as his own, and he will carry you on. In Psalm 16, picking up in verse 6, it says, The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely, I have delightful, Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I would not be shaken. When reading this earlier, the psalmist in, in this chapter, as he's penning this, I can imagine him just, his confidence just building and just rising. See, when it says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, you have to see what God has done for you. What he's done for you in the past what he's doing for you now and what he's going to do for you in the future. And he says, goes on and says, surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord. You have to praise him in the midst of your circumstance. You have to praise him in the midst of everything that's going on. Because he's faithful. He says, who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. In verse 8, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. You have to see what he's done. What he's doing. The work and his workmanship being you. You have to praise him in the midst of your circumstance. You have to keep your eyes on him. You have to fix your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on the one that is going to bring that promise to pass. The one who is going to fulfill his work in your life. Who causes us to will and to act. And it says that I would not be shaken because you're at his right hand. Nobody can snatch you out of the father's right hand. No circumstance. No obstacle. No life from the pits of hell can snatch you out of his right hand. He has a strong right arm that works out salvation for him. And in verse 9, it says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. See, the psalmist realizes that it's not up to him. It's never been up to us. Our job is to obey and to trust the word of the Lord. And it says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will be secure. My body also will rest secure. Because you would not abandon me to the realms of the dead, nor would you let your faithful one see the cave. Now this is David writing this in Psalm 16. David died, but David is holding on to a promise that the Messiah is coming, and he said, "I know that you will not abandon me to the grave, to the realms of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see the cave." While you're in the midst of your circumstance, you're in the midst of whatever it is that's going in your life, God will not abandon you. Psalm 18 proves that. When we cry out to him, he is going to part the heavens. He's going to come down by his mighty right arm. He's going to pick you up out of that situation. He's going to deliver you in the midst of it. In verse 11, it says, you make known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. With eternal pleasures at your right hand. Over and over and over again, we hear his right hand. His right hand. His right hand. If you're in the Lord's right hand, and it says Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Just let that settle in for a second. You're at his right hand. And you're his workmanship. And the perfect son of God who was without sin. Who said in John 5, I can only do what I see the Father doing. And the Lord is working in your life through his right hand. What does that mean for you? What what does that mean for you when you sit here? When you come faithfully day after day? When you lay down your life day after day? When you're sacrificing day after day? Do you think he's going to abandon you? He will fulfill his purpose for you. And the psalmist understood that. And picking up in Philippians 1. It says uh, in verse one, it says Philippians one, verse four says in all my prayers. And this is Paul writing in all my prayers for you, for all of you. I always pray for joy because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Whatever his promised whatever he's spoken. Not only is he going to say it once, he's going to reaffirm it. He's going to reaffirm it because he knows that the enemy is going to attack in all sorts of ways. and He's going to reaffirm. He did the same thing with Abraham over and over and over again with the covenant and the promises. And Paul is writing to his brothers. He said, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He will complete his will in your life. He will bring it to pass. Even as you sit here, maybe you can't see it, but you know that the father is faithful. You know that he desires to carry you. He desires to to move upon you so you would work according to his will and his act, his actions. He wants you to take on his mind. And as we turn to Hebrews 10, this is our last scripture. As we turn to Hebrews 10, One thing I want you guys to take out of this, your confidence is derived from the Father. It's not something that you can muster up. It's not something you can shake yourself to. It's derived from the Father. He's confident in everything that he does. He's confident when he made you. He's confident when he spoke to you. He's confident when he's brought those promises that he spoke to you about in the past. And he's confident that he's going to complete that work in your life.
0: You know, it 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 excites me to think that he who began a good work in me is going to carry it on. You know, when the Lord began a good work in me, he he began a really really good work. And uh, there's been times since then where I've just kind of wondered, is it gonna, is it gonna last? But the Lord has always been faithful in my life to carry me on. Everybody say, carry on. Carry on. Carry on. Carry on Everybody stand. We're going to turn to Hebrews 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, where we're going to land. You see, we talked about the will of God that He will carry you on to completion. Provided that you are obedient and you are following after Him. In verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 10 it says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. I say once and for all. Once and for all. By the will of God you have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for And for all. You were made holy. You were made made holy at the cross. You were made holy when Jesus Christ began that good work in you. Don't you forget it. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Romans 16, 19 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Verse 14, For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. One sacrifice, Jesus Christ, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. If you are in Christ Jesus, and you are walking in Him, and you're you're moving in obedience to Him, you're responding to Him, you're you're His Son, He's your Father, He has made you perfect forever. And you're being made holy. Holy. All at the same time. He made you perfect and you are being made holy. Amen. Don't forget. If you pull yourself out of that process because you love sin. You won't have, there won't be a good outcome. You'll be held accountable for all the work that God did in you. But, if it is your heart's desire to get it right. If you desperately want more of the Lord. If you desperately want to get this right and follow after Him and, and succeed in doing His will, He has made you perfect and He is making you holy. Amen. In verse 17 it says, Then He adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Everybody say no more. no more. He will not remember your sins anymore. There used to be an old song that said no fishing. No fishing in the sea of forgetfulness. Once God takes your sins, He throws it into that sea of forgetfulness, and you're not supposed to go fishing anymore. You're not supposed to go to that sea and go fish fish for those sins. You leave them where they're at. He will remember your sins no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. See, what happens when we sin? The devil tries to use that sin to drive us away from the Father. And then we start trying to sacrifice. We start trying, Lord, is there just something I can do to get rid of this guilt? Is there just something I can do to get rid of this weight, Lord? Lord, I messed up. Lord, what am I going to do? And it says here that, what does it say? No sacrifice for sin is, is, is necessary because He made that already. He made that sacrifice so you don't have to. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance. Say full assurance. Full assurance, assurance, not half assurance. The full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Everybody say unswervingly. Unswervingly. Because when you realize that Jesus Christ has cleansed you from your sins. It's no more. Death has no sting. You've got confidence. You've got a reason for confidence. You got a reason to hold unswervingly to the face to the to the hope and the faith that you profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. You see there is a crafty serpent trying to steal your joy trying to steal your confidence. And He uses your sin. He uses your sinful nature. He uses your thoughts. He uses the people around you. He uses your circumstances, your finances. He uses even Scripture to make you believe that you are not one of God's sons. But you need to understand that if you have a break in faith, if you you fully don't Grasp that Jesus Christ can cleanse every sin, no matter what it is, no matter when you did it, no matter what you knew when you did it, no matter who you left out, whatever, if you don't grasp that, you belittle God and what He did for you. You belittle Jesus and what He did. He fully has the power to cleanse you from every single sin. How many times do we walk? How many times do we come to church? How many times do we come to Monday night Bible study and we... And we feel like we're supposed to do something, but we can't because we've been walking around with years and years of shame because of what we did years ago, because of what we did yesterday. That's the devil trying to rob you of your sonship. If you are cleansed, it's over. You are free. It is for freedom that Christ set you free, as Galatians 5 1 says. He set you free so that you can walk free. So this isn't, this isn't a time to, you know, come and, you know, make a big fuss about whatever. This is a time to come to the Father. Come before the Father and regain that sonship. If you've been feeling guilt, you've been feeling shame, you've been feeling doubt that the Lord is going to actually carry out what he's going to do, he has said it in his word. He has done it in my life. He's done it in Ben's life. He's done it in Pastor Matt and Elder Charlie's life. He's done it in so many of your lives. There is no reason to doubt the Lord this morning. You need to come to this altar and just get a fresh new feeling of God's spirit. You get a fresh new feeling of God's spirit and a fresh new understanding of who you are in his sight and what he is doing for you.